Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're talking about Frank Belknap Long's weird tale, The Hounds of Tindalos. But before we get into all that temporal stuff, what is going on? So Paul, you've been writing for another fanzine, not just the Blasphemous Tome. Well, I think this one would be classed as a magazine rather than a fanzine. It's a, you know, a full-size, uh, full-colour. I mean, ours is full-colour now, but, you know, anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's the Bayat Al-Azif magazine, and it's now on issue five. And I wrote an article for that about my top three starter scenarios for Call of Cthulhu. You say magazine, but these things, because I've got them all printed through Drive Through RPG, they come out the size of a small paperback well, not small paperback a regular paperback scenario supplement these are quite meaty publications that's what i mean it's kind of a quite chunky thing yeah and also somewhat envious of you again paul uh, looks like you're going up to the hot sunny tourist destination that is leicester at the end of july oh yes i'll be taking me uh swimming costume and everything yeah obviously <laughs> yes that's the 28th to the 30th of july in uh, this year 2023 and i'll be running some call of cthulhu games there and if you want to go i'm pretty sure there are still tickets left that's continuum in leicester and matt you did an interview recently well you were on the receiving end for an interview recently yeah it makes a change i haven't done an interview for a little while now so the folks over at the illusion horror and con reached out to me as part of their Ask the Author series following a playthrough that they did of my cult scenario, Judgment. So they had the players and the GM, Crystal Wartman, asked me basically a series of their questions that arose from their experience of playing it, which was quite nice. And also found in the comments on the video, which I should leave a reply to, apparently Magnus Sita, one of the uh, authors on cult, also apparently is a listener to the podcast. So hello, Magnus. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Yeah, so that was a pleasant surprise. I was just coming down with the first signs of flu at that point, so hence being a few minutes late. If you do go on the YouTube video that I'm sure Scott will put a link to in the show notes, there's about a 15-minute gap at the front where I was currently being prodded to say, oi, it's, it's time for the interview to start, and me going, oh, crap, I've just woken up. So, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, having to then scramble upstairs, and thankfully my, my voice held out through the interview, which was quite fortuitous. But um, another interview that I did recently was for Vazine Issue 2 about the influence of gothic horror on the Vazen RPG. Huh. I was towards the tail end of flu when I wrote my responses to that, but thankfully didn't have to appear on screen or record anything. That was a text-written question-and-answer writing back and forth. Ah, old school. Quite nicely tying in with our semi-recent episode from the Good Friends on gothic horror. And another convention coming up, a weekend with good friends, an online convention taking place this coming weekend as of the release of this episode. And that's the 7th to the 9th of July, 2023. It's too late now to sign up for scheduled games, but there will be pickup games and seminars running throughout the weekend. Yep, all three of us will be doing seminars. Uh, this is the first weekend with good friends to actually feature seminars. 
please do come along and watch some of them. They'll be live streamed and I believe we'll be recording them as well. So if you can't catch them live, they should go up on YouTube. But we'll confirm that a bit close to the time. A weekend with Good Friends, of course, is the online gaming convention organised by our lovely listeners that takes place on the Good Friends Discord server. And I will put a link to all that in the show notes over on blasphemousthomes.com. And now on to our main topic, the Hounds of Tinderloss. Following on from our recent episodes about time travel, we wanted to explore an example of the genre, and mainly what happens when you screw up with time travel. While the defining work of Mythos time travel is almost certainly Lovecraft's The Shadow Out of Time, we discussed that way back in episodes 56 and 57. That seems like a lifetime ago now. Wow. Mm-hmm. Happily, Frank Belknap Long's The Hounds of Tindalos is almost as well known amongst fans of Lovecraftian horror. While it may not have quite the same depth as Lovecraft's opus, it does introduce a popular Call of Cthulhu antagonist, as well as a few weird ideas about time and space. And boy, are they weird. <laughs> so who was Frank Belknap Long? Well, Frank Belknap Long was born in New York City in 1903. He studied journalism, but his academic career was cut short when he developed appendicitis, and it all went a bit wrong and he had an extended stay in hospital. And instead, he took up writing fantastical and weird fiction, which had been his passion since childhood. Long started selling fiction in his teens, and Lovecraft read an early story from 1921 called The Eye Above the Mantle and he and Long became correspondents. They met shortly after, and Long became a core member of the Lovecraft Circle. The two remained good friends until Lovecraft's death in 1937. As Lovecraft shaped what would become known as the Cthulhu mythos, he encouraged Long to write stories in this setting. The Hounds of Tindloss is credited as being the first mythos tale not written by Lovecraft. I didn't know that. Although Long didn't originally conceive it as part of the mythos, it was first published in the March 1929 edition of Weird Tales and has since been reprinted in countless anthologies. And boy, that yeah, there's a lot of places where this appears. Yeah, it's also in the public domain now, so it's readily available online. And I'll put a link to the full story in the show notes. Long followed the Hounds of Tindalos with a handful of other mythos tales, from the Space Eaters, which featured a protagonist based on Lovecraft, all the way through to Dark Awakening, which was published in New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos in 1980. Long's short mythos novel, The Horror from the Hills, was based on a dream that Lovecraft related to Long. Arkham House published the first collection of Long's fiction in 1946 as The Hounds of Tindalos. In 1975, Arkham House also published Long's memoir of Lovecraft, Howard Phillips Lovecraft, Dreamer on the Night Side. Yeah, I remember reading that Donkeys years ago. I, in fact, I think that was the first book about Lovecraft that I ever read. And I'd say it's a, a less academic and more personal mm. account of Lovecraft's life than you'd see in, well, particularly in Joshi's work. Uh, it's a very accessible book, uh, but I think sadly it's out of print at the moment. That can be said of a lot of stuff connected with the mythos. Mm. In this memoir, Long catalogues his own contributions to the mythos. 
ranging from the tiny, flesh-devouring dolls who inhabited an alien dimension shrouded in night and chaos to the monstrous Shauna Thorn, whom only the suicidally inclined would have mistaken for a pachyderm. I also contributed one scenic vista, the mysterious, perpetually misshrouded Plateau of Leng, and one forbidden book, John Dee's English translation of The Necronomicon. Yeah, I didn't realise the Plateau of Leng was Long's creation. No, I was surprised to see that. Yeah, because Lovecraft had written about Leng in the DreamQuest of Unknown Death back in, what was it, 1926 or so. So... Mm. I don't know if this is Long taking that version of Leng and turning it into something else, the plateau of Leng that we see in other places. So the HP Lovecraft wiki says that Leng is a fictional location created by Lovecraft. The plateau of Leng, referenced by Frank Belknap Long and others, may be a region of Leng. So I think, yeah, right. it's the case that Long took the word Leng, the location of Leng, and created the plateau of Leng. That makes sense. Despite being remembered largely for his mythos tale, most of Long's work was actually science fiction. He had a successful career writing for the SF pulps and various anthologies throughout his lifetime, and won Bram Stoker and World Fantasy Achievement Awards towards the end of his life. And Long died in 1994 at the age of 90. Now let's explore the tale, The Hounds of Tinderloss. The narrator, apparently Frank Belknot Long himself, calls upon his friend Halpin Chalmers, an occult writer with the soul of um, a medieval aesthetic. Aesthetic. Fuck this guy. <laughs> an occult writer with the soul of a medieval as aesthetic. Aesthetic. It's without the th, without the th. A soul of a guy from the medieval fucking age. Will that work? <laughs> While Chalmers has long scoffed at modern science, he is taken with the works of Einstein, whom he proclaims a priest of transcendental mathematics. Something we should all study up to the age of 18. <laughs> I can just imagine that Einstein clothed in robes of the clergy there. I mean, that is very much a theme of this story, that concept of higher mathematics and, and physics being twinned with occultism and this mystical view of the world that mm. seems to be at the core of a lot of the mythos. The idea that basically all this weird shit can be seen and understood through the lens of science, that it is fundamentally scientific. Inspired by Einstein, Chalmers wishes to observe the fourth dimension firsthand, assisted quite sensibly, by mind-expanding drugs. <laughs> Although his experiments have been limited to hashish and opium, Chalmers has recently procured a long-forgotten drug, which he believes can send his consciousness back in time. Yes, he's gone right to the back of the medicine cabinet, and there <laughs> is this long-forgotten little bottle labelled Liao. There are a couple of things in this story that seemed to be very ahead of its time. I mean, this was written, I think, in 1927. It was published in 1929. And 
it talks for a start about drugs being mind expanding and showing you all these these strange vistas and visions and so on, which is something that I think we saw very much popularized by writers such as Aldous Huxley not too long after this, and then obviously through the 1960s with the psychedelic movement there. But I think Long was comparatively ahead of his time here with that approach. He wasn't the first. I mean, he, I think even in the no. story, he references William James talking about the same thing. But it wasn't as ubiquitous a part of popular culture as we might think now. And mm. also, I think, I, I don't know, again, someone who's more scholarly may have an answer here, but this has to be one of the first stories, science fiction stories, that refers to time as being a physical fourth dimension. Because again, it's something we see a lot in science fiction, particularly, I'd say, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and onwards. But I, again, this was 1927 he was writing it. Maybe other people have beaten him to it, but I don't know. It seems mm. like quite a, a pressing bit of writing. So as Paul just mentioned, the drug that Chalmers is taking is called Liao and was apparently used by the Chinese philosopher Latze. Chalmers explains its effects in terms of Taoism, which Long derides as rubbish, which... Hmm. It's a, a bold view, and uh, apologies to any Taoists out there. Chalmers asks Long to observe his experiment and take notes, and to help Chalmers find his way back if he becomes lost in time. Because lost in space would have been copyright, although I imagine a few, this came out way before the show. Just a bit. Yeah. Long is highly sceptical of every part of this experiment. Why am I not surprised he is the voice of reason in this story? He is, yeah. <laughs> Despite these reservations, Chalmers talks long around by discussing the mathematical preparations <laughs> he has made. I'm sure that's most reassuring that this guy is going to take a lot of drugs, but he's done some maths. He's got charts, Paul. He's got charts. Yeah, he's got diagrams, charts, probably some algebra. Don't take unknown drugs without doing charts first. Well, as long as he's got the charts, any drugs he take are safe. Chalmers studies his charts and then swallows the drug. The clock in the room stops ticking. And I just want to jump back to a line here when he's talking about taking the, the hashish, opium, all manner of drugs. I would emulate the sages of the East and then perhaps I would apprehend what? The fourth dimension. To which Long says, theosophical rubbish. Yes. So he gets a bit of theosophical uh, references in there as well. References to theosophy, I should say. Oh, this whole story is riddled with references to theosophy. We'll come across more soon. But it's, that's the only place they actually reference theosophy. By name, yes, but there are theosophical ideas later on. I'm just rather glad, as an ancient drug, that this thing can be taken in tablet form. So there's this hope I can maybe, if I do ever get my hands on some of this, I might take it rather than have to cope with my terrible needle phobia. I don't have to worry about uh, injecting this stuff. I can just... Done. Chalmers grows pale, saying that time has stopped. He claims to be able to see the room through his eyelids, though it is growing dark. Then suddenly his eyelids flutter open, and he proclaims... God in heaven, I see. My Führer, I can walk. <laughs> <laughs> I see everything. 
all of the billions of lives that preceded me on this planet are before me at this moment. I see men of all ages, all races, all colours. They are fighting, killing, building, dancing, singing. Fuck me, it's a musical. Oh, they're singing and dancing. Oh, God. I was going to say, why the fuck is he wasting time looking at that shit when he could be looking at something more interesting? Just change channels, man. Get onto some good stuff. But it's interesting the way that Chalmers describes this other dimension of time as well. He sort of describes it as being all there with him right now Mm. so that he's not going to go anywhere. It's like turning the dial on a, you know, on an old television set. You're turning the dial and tuning back through time, but he's actually just sat there looking at it And it's all there, just layered in. Everything that has ever happened and everything that is going to happen is all there, layered on top of each other in his room in front of him. But at the same time, as we'll see in the next bit, he is actually experiencing these things as well firsthand. It's not just that he's seeing them as an observer like he would if it were a TV show. Charles then narrates a whistle-stop tour of history that sounds like a skim reading of the Encyclopedia Britannica. I wonder where he got his inspiration from. He visits with Neanderthals, stops off at ancient Greece and Rome. Beverly went back a bit, then came forward. Works as a galley slave, gets burnt at the stake, meets Dante, watches The Merchant of Venice in Elizabethan London, and offers some magical advice to Simon Magus. As you do. It's very much a highlights tour, isn't it? It really is, yeah. It's like how people who talk about their past lives mm. are never boring people. They were always fucking Nefertiti or something. Yeah, they, mm. were, they were never just the third spear carrier from the left. Alexander the Great's chief eunuch. Peppering the more mundane historical details are references to migrations from Atlantis and Lemuria, as well as, quote, a strange horde of black dwarves overwhelming Asia. Are these from theosophy or some reference to the Chocho. I mean, certainly Atlantis and Lemuria, you yeah. know, I think they, uh, they're very much referenced in Theosophy, which, you know, was, I think we can't overstate how much a, an influence that was on, on this period. But this strange horde of black dwarfs overcoming Asia, that feels like it should be a reference to something that I'm not getting here. And I just wondered, I mean, you've read more about theosophy than I have, Paul. Is that something you remember seeing in any theosophical texts? Or is this just something that he made up for the story? Or Yeah, I don't remember that specific reference, but I mean, there's certainly reference to like various uh, root races that come and go through time. And I did wonder about the Chocho, but I, I mean, that was August Ehrlich, wasn't it, who came up with those, and that was some years later. It doesn't seem to fit with those, but who knows? It may be that throwaway line inspired Derleth to create something of his own. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, I really don't know. Chalmers also sneaks in a mention of the Magna Mater there for all of the Rats in the Walls fans out there. But all of this isn't enough for him. By simply straining, I can see farther and farther back. Now I am going back through strange curves and angles. Angles and curves multiply about me. I perceive great segments of time through curves. There is curved time and angular time. The beings that exist in angular time cannot enter curved time. It is very strange. No shit, Sherlock. Yeah. (laughs) 
It is very strange. It doesn't really make any sense, but I do love this whole idea of angular time and curved time, which mm. obviously is central to what happens later in the story. But it's just such a, a weird conceit that I find it immensely appealing. Hmm. He briefly glimpses great reptiles roaming the land, but his consciousness seems to be accelerating backwards. After passing through a time when life just existed in the ocean, he sees a world of single-celled organisms, and then only strange angles. Oops. <laughs> Chalmers becomes terrified as he moves beyond everything comprehensible, approaching the burning horror of it. Beyond life, there are things that I cannot distinguish. They have no bodies, and they move slowly through outrageous angles. <laughs> outrageous, I tell you. <laughs> Not just ordinary angles. He doesn't say that, but I added that. What is an outrageous? You get acute angles, you get obtuse angles, you get reflective ones. I've not come across an outrageous one, but... It's sharper than 120 degrees, as uh, it's outlined in the Malice Monstorum. <laughs> yes, indeed. Chalmers shrieks that these entities have scented him and are slowly turning towards him. Long notices a pungent and indescribable odour building in the room. Chalmers crawls on all fours, slobbering and moaning, clawing at the air with his hands. He had commenced to utter hoarse, convulsive sounds that resembled nothing so much as the barking of a dog and began a sort of hideous writhing in a circle about the room. Having beans for dinner always does that to me. <sighs> it struck me as the hounds of Tindalos, but he's barking like a dog. You know, mm. We've got this, this curious kind of mix-up of... because. It's not really implied that he's becoming a hound. Perhaps he is. Perhaps he's mm. like influenced by them and he's you know, becoming like a dog. I don't know. This little bit here is something that I don't think we necessarily see explored a lot in Call of Cthulhu, but here is at the core of the story, that these hounds are having an influence on him. Maybe he's mm. emulating them because he's seen them and perhaps has taken a bit of a sand hit and this is his reaction, or maybe one of them is trying to manifest through him. But yeah, this is a weird bit. When I've seen Hounds of Tindalos and Call of Cthulhu, and I've I've not seen all the published references to them. They do seem to be much more there as devouring monsters, or you know, certainly murderous monsters. And you know, as we'll see later in the story, that's not without merit. But here, there is this weird aspect to them that, yeah, I don't think we see explored nearly enough. Well, it could be that they're becoming a, uh, a Tindalosian hybrid, which is uh, from the Malleus Monstrorum, which we'll perhaps get to, to talk mm. about later. As Long shakes Chalmers, he snaps out of this fit and collapses on the rug. Long moves him onto a sofa and fetches a fortifying whiskey. That's just what you need when you mm. have too many drugs, some whiskey. <laughs> this brings Chalmers back to his senses. Of, of course it does. While Long blames the drug for Chalmers' strange behaviour, Chalmers explains that he simply went too far back. There he encountered something terrible. No words in our language can describe them, he spoke in a hoarse whisper. They're symbolised vaguely in the myth of the fall and an obscene form which is occasionally found engraved on ancient tablets. The Greeks had a name for them which veiled their essential foulness. 
the tree, the snake, the apple. These are the vague symbols of the most awful mystery. A terrible and unspeakable deed was done in the beginning. Before time, the deed, and from the deed, dot, 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 blank. I'm fascinated by this little bit. Hmm. I'm not really sure what to make of it. And I don't know if this is something that Long expected us to be able to decode or whether this is him just throwing in weird elements. But this linking of the Hounds of Tintalos to the fall to the tree of knowledge of good and evil yeah, they, I mean, it It does seem like, I don't know, is, is this linking perhaps the, the splitting of time into curves and angles to some kind of, some kind of fall from grace, you know, the nature of reality at the beginning or, yeah, it's, it's weird. Or perhaps we're just seeing, you know, this through the prism of Chalmers' worldview. You know, if he's a religious character, a uh, Christian character, then he's perhaps seen the primordial sludge. And to him, you know, way back, it all starts with the Garden of Eden, right? So perhaps he's imposing that on it. I don't know. The Garden of Eden, yes, but he's focusing very much on the fall. So hmm. that implies some degree of learning forbidden knowledge and paying a price for it. I quite like this because it's it's one of those things if you look into, I can't remember his name now off the top of my head, but if you look into lots of ancient world mythologies, that there is normally a kernel of truth in there that you can put as a an inspirational moment in real world history that inspires the myth. But there's been plenty of debate amongst archaeologists over the last couple of decades about the, the flooding of the Mediterranean and the flooding that eventually mm. caused the Black Sea to be the event that's kind of spawned the flood in the Bible. And that there is maybe something hidden right at the kernel of the the core of the beginning of the Old Testament that is something that has a mythos origin. And I, I quite like this, that it's open to whatever interpretation you want to put on it, that there is some hidden, deeper, darker secret behind what all these people have read. Graham Hancock's got things to say about this, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, and they can stay on Netflix. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Uh... At some point, maybe we should do an episode on how to take inspiration from all this bunk archaeology and, and the like that's out there without losing your mind in the process. There's a great series of YouTube videos, which I'll have to see if I can pass on the link for, where there's a young guy who's just passed his archaeology degree, archaeology PhD, I think it is, that has this series title that I watched Graham Hancock's Ancient Apocalypse so you don't have to. <laughs> and just watching that was so much more fun than watching the bloody series. It really was. <laughs> Chalmers explains that the seeds of this deed move through angles in dim recesses of time. Long continues to offer platitudes, but Chalmers is not calmed by this. They are lean and athirst, he shrieked. The hounds of Tindalos. Title drop. So Long offers to call a doctor, but uh, Chalmers says there's no point, and he continues. All the evil in the universe was concentrated in their lean, hungry bodies. Or had they bodies? I saw them only for a moment. I, I cannot be certain, but I heard them breathe. Men awake in them cosmic hungers. There is a part of us 
which did not partake in the deed, and that they hate. But do not imagine that they are literally, prosaically evil. They are beyond good and evil as we know it. They are that which in the beginning fell away from cleanliness. Through the deed, they became bodies of death, receptacles of all foulness. But they are not evil in our sense, because in the spheres through which they move, there is no thought, no morals, no right or wrong as we understand it. There is merely the pure and the foul. The foul expresses itself through angles, the pure through curves. Man, the pure part of him, is descended from a curve. Do not laugh, I mean that literally. We're all born from curves. <laughs> there you go. There is that line in the Bible of a uh, woman being born from Adam's rib. And I suppose you could see the rib has been a curve, so. Oh. Although apparently that is a mistranslation of the original source and the the term for rib there refers actually to like half of the body. And so it's, I think the idea was that Adam was supposedly was split in half and half of him was used to make Eve. Ooh. As with a, a lot of stuff in, in scripture, it's been through translation through many different languages and terms and metaphors have evolved that were never the original intent. You think one day we'll get photocopies that work properly and they don't degrade with every subsequent copy? Hearing this gibberish, Long makes his excuses and leaves. Again, sensible guy. His mood doesn't improve when Chalmers phones the following morning, begging Long to bring him some plaster. Everly, he's suddenly decided he wants to do some artwork, maybe inspired by that mm. guy that he's met, um, what's his name, Pickman. Or maybe some DIY, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I can't get past the idea of Pickman as a plasterer. Multi-talented artist here, damn it. Pickman's remodelling. When Long hears Chalmers sobbing, however, he agrees. Okay, I'll bring you the damn plaster, <laughs> yeah. Arriving at Chalmers' apartment, Long finds the living room stripped of any furniture. And Chalmers tells Long to fetch a bucket of water so they can mix the plaster. He explains that by plastering the corners and turning the room into a sphere, they can remove any angles that the hounds might be able to use. As Long helps with the plastering, Chalmers explains, when they discover that the scent leads through curves, they will return ravenous and snarling and unsatisfied to the foulness that was in the beginning, before time, beyond space. So he sort of implies here that they turn it into a sphere. I mean, really, what I, in my mind, is what I picture is like they're adding like coving at the top of the walls, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, like a bit of curved, like you've got the corner where the ceiling meets the, the wall, at the top of the wall, and you're just adding a bit of plaster and sort of skimming it around so that's not a 90 degree angle, it's like a curve, because there's no way you're going to plaster a room into a sphere with 20 pounds of plaster. <laughs> but you could potentially do that. I don't think you, it wouldn't have to be too big a room, but you could do that. Yeah, that's my DIY tip for the day. <laughs> I do also appreciate how you were pointing out the corners of your room to the podcast listeners. Yeah, there are no corners in this room. I'll just let you know that. <laughs> I've sorted that. At least they're not doing that bloody textured Artex nonsense. Oh, <laughs> that stuff stinks as well. If this had been written in the 80s, maybe. Yeah. Chalmers brushes off Long's suggestion to see a doctor, again, and rambles on until Long leaves. 
oddly enough, he just leaves. He just gets gets the hell out of there with uh, the guy just rambling on. I know that you think me insane. You have a shrewd but prosaic mind, and you cannot conceive of an entity that does not depend for its existence on force and matter. But did it ever occur to you, my friend, that force and matter are merely the barriers to perception imposed by time and space? When one knows, as I do, that time and space are identical and that they are both deceptive because they are merely imperfect manifestations of a higher reality, one no longer seeks in the visible world for an explanation of the mystery and terror of being. You can tell he was just obviously viewed as being crazy because those are long sentences, damn it! You don't have to emulate Lovecraft in that manner too. <laughs> Matt, I've edited your work. Your sentences are longer than that on average. Pa! Much longer. Pa! And we'll be back with more about Charms's fate after this short break. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Listen to donations, keep this show running, and every penny helps. If you'd like to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, and today we're looking at Frank Belknap Long's story, The Hounds of Tinderloss. So the remainder of this story is told in the form of documents from various sources. The first is a pair of newspaper clippings. One tells of an unusual earthquake in the vicinity of Chalmers' home, causing serious damage to a number of buildings. A plaster-cracking earthquake, one might say. Mm. I love how this story finishes with some handouts. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. The second is a report of Chalmers' death. A neighbour called the building superintendent upon smelling an extremely acrid and nauseous odour coming from Chalmers' apartment. The superintendent let himself in and found the living room empty apart from Chalmers' body. The state of this body nearly gave the superintendent a heart attack. That description of the smell, I think we've talked on the podcast before about narration as a keeper and how you want to bring in all their senses. And I'm particularly taken with the use of smell in this story. I, Long does obviously not go into details of what particularly the hounds smell like, but this acrid and nauseous odour. So there seems to be a very chemical smell, perhaps, or you know, certainly something that's an irritant, but also nauseating. And I like that it doesn't necessarily follow a lot of the descriptions of smells that we encounter in horror. It's not putrescent. It doesn't smell of death or anything like that. It just seems to smell kind of alien and wrong and irritating. It's a smell that doesn't belong there. And as a result, is an insult to the senses. And that, that's kind of cool to me. I like that he uses these words in the story, but I just find it hard to think that the neighbour has rung up using those actual <laughs> words to report it. Hello, I'd like to report an extremely acrid and nauseous odour coming from my neighbour's apartment. <laughs> Maybe the neighbour compels thesauruses for a living. You never know, Paul. Yeah. Chalmers lay stretched upon his back in the centre of the room. He was starkly nude and his chest and arms were covered with a peculiar bluish pus or ichor. His head lay grotesquely upon his chest. 
It had been completely severed from his body, and the features were twisted and torn and horribly mangled. Nowhere was there a trace of blood. At least they're clean. And there's the use of the word I-core. Mm. Years ago, when we were doing the Lovecraftian Word of the Week, one time our Word of the Week was i It was. And yeah. it hadn't occurred to me until I did a bit of reading for that episode that i had a very specific meaning prior to weird fiction, which was the blood of the gods. Lovecraft used it more in the sense that we see today as this sort of organic, viscous, you know, gloopy uh, substance. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm kind of taken with perhaps almost seeing this as a literal use of the old-fashioned term Icor here, that it's almost imparting some divinity to the hounds, that you know, if this is their blood, then, yeah, they're gods. A god is just dog spelt backwards. <laughs> so that dodgy angles he's been passing through, he saw it from the wrong, yeah, wrong angle. <laughs> While the walls had been plastered, large chunks had fallen off in the earthquake. Someone had grouped these upon the floor about the murdered man so as to form a perfect triangle. That's really nice that they fell in such a precise group of chunks. Well, I think the implication is somebody's moved them into that formation right because someone had grouped them that way yeah they still they still form a perfect triangle hmm placed there by some entity that i don't know is really fucking into angles (laughs) (laughs) some charred pages were also in the room covered in scrawled handwriting i do not believe they can reach me but i must beware of the dolls perhaps they can help them break through the satyrs will help, and they can advance through the scarlet circles. The Greeks knew a way of preventing that. It is a great pity that we have forgotten so much. A terrific shock has loosened the plaster, and it is falling. I never could have anticipated this. I will recite the Einstein formula. I will. God, they are breaking through. They are breaking through. Smoke is pouring from the corners of the wall. Their tongues. Ah! (laughs) To quote, the window, the window. (laughs) Yes, the hand. I love that he's writing this shit down. (laughs) It's brilliant. Always great, that is. It's great. We see this in The Haunter of the Darkened in, is it Dagon or the Temple? It's Dagon. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. Both of which end with the, the protagonist writing down the horrible thing that is coming for them. But even apart from that bit of lunacy, that first paragraph there, I mean, it, it almost feels like something out of an Arthur Macon story. This merging of mythology and the satyrs, and mm. they advance to the scarlet circles. That sounds like something out of the white people. Then there's that reference to the dolls. Yeah. For our listeners who aren't looking at the text, this is a different spelling. This is D-O-E-L-S. And I was thinking in terms of Lovecraft's dolls or these creatures that we see in Call of Cthulhu as dolls, D-H-O-L-E-S, the huge monstrous worms. Mm. They do predate this, but Lovecraft, when he wrote about them in Dreamcast of Unknown Kadath, had at the time spelt that bowl, B-H-O-L-E-S. Mm. 
I think this is maybe the first reference to dolls with a D, but they are a very different kind of entity, as long said in that little snippet that we quoted at the start of the episode. These are small, extra-dimensional, devouring entities. So I guess they're perhaps linked to the dolls that we see in Call of Cthulhu by their appetites, but apart from that, they seem to be very, very different things. There is a scenario as well called, I believe it's called The Singer from Dole, which uses oh, yeah. the same oh. spelling as this, which I keep meaning to have a look at to see if what they're referring to. But yeah, it might be something completely different. Mm. And also that bit, I will recite the Einstein formula. So yeah. I'm just imagining, you know, say, shouting E equals MC squared as a banishing ritual. Yeah. No, you have to do it in a particular way that emulates, you shall not pass! <laughs> there is something there. I mean, jokes aside, I will recite the Einstein formula that, as we were saying earlier about this connection between what was at the time advanced mathematics and theoretical physics and the occult within the mythos, then... I, I don't know if anyone's done anything like that in Call of Cthulhu, is the idea of a purely mathematical approach to summoning and binding us on. I mean, we get a bit of that in the Laundry Files. Uh, Charles Tross very much ties mathematics in with these extra-dimensional breaches in the summoning and binding of creatures. But, yeah, I'm not sure I've ever seen it in Call of Cthulhu. Well, I feel like here with the Einstein formula, like he's referring to some, you know, secret book that Einstein's written that you know, isn't commonly known about. Uh, a bit like uh, Newtonian magic in uh, the Rivers of London. You know, you've got this thing coming from Isaac Newton. That's kind of what I feel with this, like some of Einstein's secret work <laughs> that, uh, you know, that, that we don't know of. I interpret it very differently because at the beginning he's talking about uh, yeah, Einstein as this unrealized priest of, uh, of higher mathematics. And mm. based on uh, Chalmers and his experiences at the fourth dimension, the, the way he visualizes them through taking the drugs and so on, that he has seen the magical in the mathematics there. And what Einstein has written as a paper with mathematical proof and so on, he is seeing in terms of magic and is making that mathematics work as as magic. But he refers to him, doesn't he, as uh, he refer makes some reference to transcendental mathematics. Yes, yeah, but but I, I guess I'm saying that I, I don't necessarily see that as something hidden or secret, you know, the unpublished works of Einstein that have got all this mythos information, and more that it's looking at what Einstein wrote through the right lens, through the lens of the mythos, you are seeing how it all ties in with what people would think of in earlier ages as magic. Yeah, but I'm still taken with the idea of people <laughs> have taken out some of the special formulas, but he's, uh, <laughs> this fellow's got the whole unexpurgated version. In the end, the Manhattan Project really was all about summoning Azathoth. Well, indeed. The investigating detective believes Chalmers was poisoned by the blue slime and has sent a sample to James Morton, chemist and bacteriologist. His report follows giving the reader their dose of science for this particular science fiction story. Oh, there's been plenty so far. 
this seems to be the most concentrated part that reads like a textbook. <laughs> the fluid sent to me for analysis is the most peculiar that I have ever examined. It resembles living protoplasm, but it lacks the peculiar substances known as enzymes. Enzymes catalyze the chemical reactions occurring in living cells, and when the cells die, they cause it to disintegrate by hydrolyzation. Without enzymes, protoplasm should possess enduring vitality, i.e. immortality. That living matter can exist without enzymes, biologists emphatically deny. Good God, sir, do you realise what astounding new vistas this opens up? I did have to quickly check prior to recording, because I was wondering how recent the discovery of enzymes was when Long wrote this story, because a lot of the other stuff he's talking about is you know, fairly cutting edge for when he wrote this. But yeah, no, enzymes have been discovered like 100 years before, so this is old news for the story. The final document is an excerpt from a book called The Secret Watchers by the late Holpen Chalmers. What if, parallel to the life we know, there is another life that does not die, which lacks the elements that destroy our life? Ah, but I have seen its manifestations. In my room at night I have talked with the dolls, and in dreams I have seen their maker. I have stood on the dim shore beyond time and matter, and seen it. It moves through strange curves and outrageous angles. Some day I shall travel in time and meet it face to face. And then I'm going to get my fucking head ripped off. <laughs> At least they place it neatly on the chest. <laughs> and there ends The Hounds of Tinterloss. And I think we get as many references to dolls in this D-O-E-L-S dolls mm. as we do to Hounds of Tinderloss in this story we do yeah and again two references to outrageous angles so very keen <laughs> on that as a phrase should have put impudent angle in there now let's take a look at the hounds of tinderloss after long lovecraft makes passing mention of the hounds in the whisperer in darkness the nature of the dolls was plainly revealed and I was told the essence, though not the source, of the Hounds of Tindalos. While Tindalos is never defined in Long's story, a number of other writers, including Lynn Carter and Brian Lumley, have tried to do so. Dan Harms condenses this in his Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia. World which may exist on Earth far in the past, on a far away world near a black hole, or even floating throughout time contemporaneous with all space yet unable to intrude upon it. Its towers, shaped like corkscrews, are the homes of the Hounds of Tindalos. It is whispered that an awful deed done here eons ago caused the Hounds to be created. There are a couple of stories I've read in recent years that have made use of the Hounds in ways that tie in very heavily with the original story, particularly Adam Gauntlet's story, New Build from the Private Life of Elder Things, which has the discovery of this perfectly circular room within a house that has been sealed off with all the corners uh, plastered in. And you can probably guess why someone did that and what happens when the people renovating the house 
decide to refurbish that room. And there is also Caitlin Arkeanen's The Tintloss Asset, which is part of their Tinfall Dossier series, which features an assassin who's got a special bond to a hound of Tintloss that allows her to call it when needed, and it then just turns up and kills whoever's nearby. In Kinnan's version of the mythos, the hounds just sometimes make these attachments to people and just kind of hook onto them. And I, I can see that being a, a an interesting thing to do in the game, and a real double-edged sword, that yes, it is perhaps useful having this unstoppable killing machine that you can call to you when you need it. But that's assuming that you are in any way in control of it, which yeah, I don't really get from the story, and certainly if I'm doing it in the game, I absolutely would not have the other character in control of that that relationship. Why does that not surprise me that you wouldn't make a hound a sorcerer's best friend? <laughs> well, how about Hounds of Tindalos and Call of Cthulhu? They don't appear much. I think the only scenario I can really think of where they come from is Bruce Ballon. His scenario at the beginning of Unseen Masters, which is where a lot of the material that you find in the Malus Monstorum has been extracted from. So you have the uh, the Tindalosian lords, you have uh, the almost unpronounceable Mytheria or Mytharia, or beginning with M and ending with an A, with an apostrophe somewhere in there, the <laughs> kind of god of Tindalos, and also the Tindalosian hybrids. That's where all that material comes from. Hounds of Tindalos appear in the Keeper rulebook, but the, the other entries that you mention appear in the Malus Monstrorum. And it does say what they look like is unknown, but we get kind of hints. And a beautiful illustration in Malus Monstorum as well. That full-page piece is a, is a work of art. I love that. Yeah, that's really nice. But yeah, I mean, that's a good point, because these things are not physically described in long story at all. They're called hounds, and clearly, at one point, they seem to, or at least Chalmers, seems to express dog-like behaviour and reaction to them. But there's nothing beyond that that necessarily makes them canine in any way. And I can certainly see hounds applying very much to how they scent and follow prey more than their physical appearance. Hmm. There is indeed only the one word descriptor that is used in the whole story, lean. They are thirst mm. part is how they act, but lean is the only word that actually is related to their description, if it is indeed related to their physical description. Yeah, it's been a while since I'd looked at the original descriptions of Hounds of Tindalos. When I've used them in games myself, I've tended to use my own version of them. But I remember them from Call of Cthulhu as being described as these almost skeletal dog-like things wrapped in mists and with snaking tongues that mm -hmm. would basically suck the life out of people. That's pretty much how the old Grenadier model also depicted them as well. Yeah. Yeah, the tongue is a curious thing in the entry in the Malleus Monstrorum. So you get a tongue attack, which causes a bloodless and painless hole in the body. And the victim takes no physical damage, but loses POW as a result. 3d6 POW, it's a lot of POW. Wow. Yeah, which is quite a bit. Yeah. So that's kind of curious. And then, of course, there's the blue icor, which we talked about in the story. And that can lead 
in a minority of cases, that can lead to a kind of infection that causes the Tyndallosian hybrid state that people can kind of become infected by it, which is, I think that's quite a cool idea. I quite like that. Yeah. And that blue icon did turn up in a scenario I played recently. I don't know if I want to spoil it, but it's one of the old white dwarf scenarios. I don't think it's a given that the hounds themselves turn up, but you're definitely presented with their icon. It was one that Andy Goodman ran for us as part of Grizzly Peaks Radio, and I don't know how much was Andy's embellishment over what's quite a, no pun intended, lean scenario in White Dwarf, but he presented it very much as being almost like the the alien acid blood from, from Alien. Mm. It being able to eat through just about anything and being incredibly noxious and stuff like that. And, yeah, it was really cool. And most importantly... Can I punch it? Well, yes, you can punch it, but it does have two points of armor. It regenerates at four hit points per round. And unless you've got an enchanted fist, <laughs> your punch is going to have no effect whatsoever. And, <laughs> like, that's not enough. It is covered in toxic sludge, which is going to do you 2d6 damage after you punch it. So my advice, don't punch it. <laughs> I really don't want to think about how you might enchant a fist, and just even the phrase enchanted fist sounds wrong. I guess if you've got an enchanted boxing glove, yeah, <laughs> as we see in uh, Twin Peaks Season 3, I think, the guy has the, uh, is it an enchanted boxing glove or something he has that he, used, he uses? Oh, I can't remember. Still yet to see it. Although you can have an enchanted glove in Call of Cthulhu, because maybe you do have the enchant glove spell. <laughs> well, these are made for each other, clearly. <laughs> yeah, but all it does is uh, kind of suck magic points. It's, hey, Mr. Hound, can I stroke you and get some magic That's points? Yeah. <laughs> so in the coronation, Charles, <laughs> he was given all these things, like he gets the magic orb, the magic sword, all this, all these magic items gets given to him. But he just gets one glove. One glove, not, not a pair. He's just got one glove. That's clearly like the enchanted glove. But what you were talking about there with how deadly and impossible to harm hounds are, I think that very much mm. colours how we might use them in our games. Certainly where I've used them, I've used them very much as plot devices, almost like timers, the hounds are turning up, what are you going to do about it? Or how are you going to placate them? How are you going to deal with the situation yeah. once they get there? Because I think any situation where you expect the player characters to fight a hound of tint loss is not going to end well for them. I think it'd make a great pet for a pulp character <laughs> in a pulp campaign. I can see that happening. An animal companion. Yeah. In the stream of chaos that are currently playing through the last stages of the Two-Headed Serpent, we've got one of the characters in there who's got the pulp talent animal companion and keeps complaining what the fucking use is this talent. So yeah, he should have got a hound. That was what he should have done. There you go. There you go. What use is the talent? Surely there are all sorts of pets that you could have in Pop Cthulhu. Yes. Well, and how we roll when I ran Two-Headed Serpent, or I'm still running Two-Headed Serpent, but in the early days when I ran Two-Headed Serpent there, one of the original characters had Animal Companion. And so the first thing he does in Bolivia is... Befriend the monkey? No, no. One of the serpent hounds. Oh, there you go. He called it Greg. This was, uh, 
Ethan, played by Karen. Craig then went through the rest of the campaign, just randomly eating NPCs. Every time they kind of forgot he was there, he'd just eat an NPC they were talking to, and they'd be reminded that, oh, yeah, yeah, we're traveling with a monster. Oops. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to everyone who has ever listened to the podcast, even way back in the distant past before time was bifurcated into angles and curves. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, thanks very much to Mike Ostwald. And thank you much to Michael Kremin. And thank you very much to Extina Pierce Tomlin. And thanks to GL. And thank you also to the singular Lex. And thank you to Stefan Flanagan. And thanks to Graham. And also thank you to Aaron Glaze. And thank you to Willow Bailey. And thanks to Giuseppe Stringano. Ah, here's a name I know well. Thank you very much to Frank Dalventhal. And thank you to Christine Fisher. And thanks to the Dark Chaplin. That's a creepy name. It is. <laughs> and thank you much to uh, also a uh, random collection of letters and numbers that's uh, here. <laughs> Zero XBCD. You say random collection, but I'm sure that means something in hexadecimal. It might do, but I have no fucking idea what it is. And thank you very much to Marlon Favaro Callaman. And thanks to Trevor Lead. Thank you also to the uh, very well-named here, Matthew Lewinton. And thank you to Jonathan Shaw. And thanks to Merrick. And thank you much to Sarah Marie Morris. And thank you finally to Chaos Alpha. And as ever, if we have completely mangled any of your names, please do let us know. And we will try to do better. And fail. (laughs) (laughs) And in this world of social media, we would appreciate it if you could spread the good word of Jackson Elias wherever that may be, whichever platforms you use. I'm sure other people use them too and would welcome the good word of Jackson. Shout it and echo it down the corridors of time for those hounds to hear you off in the distance. (laughs) Or alternatively, just leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, The latter is probably less likely to get your head ripped off, but... Well, that was the Hounds of Tindalos and you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.